together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us this time to look at it. We need your guidance, and so we ask you to be merciful to us and come by your Holy Spirit. Come to this place, come to our hearts, and uh, guide us into truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. He's my idol. When we hear those words, we might think to ourselves, oh, a football player or a pop star. Uh, maybe we even think, uh, yes, there are people who worship statues. Somebody has observed that idolatry is our greatest problem. Calvin noted, our hearts are idol factories. And... Um, Jeremiah underscores this problem in chapter 2, verse 13. He says, God's people have committed two errors. First thing is they've forsaken him. The second thing they've done is created for themselves cisterns for water that are broken cisterns and therefore can't hold water. And you get the idea. When we go after idols, we're looking for satisfaction. And when we look in the wrong place, though we do so with great hope, it just drizzles out. So the need of the moment is to get our heads around the gospel. Uh, and in order to do that, I hope we can think together about the problem of idolatry. I hope you can feel something of its danger, uh, decide to resist it, and then I hope that you will choose to advance God's kingdom in your own life and influence to the extent that you're able in response to this huge problem of idolatry. Uh, today's sermon is entitled, Keep Yourselves from Idols. You keep yourself from idols. You keep, you keep yourselves from idols. That's God's word to all of us. And we're looking at those verses that Agilon just read. What does Paul do in that section? If you have a Please turn to uh, Acts chapter 19. We'll start with verse 21. Uh, what does Paul do in that section? Well, the first thing he does is he places idolatry in a context so that we can look at it. Then he provides an example of idolatry. Next, he shows us the dangers of the idolatry. And then finally, he draws us to God's grace. Well, Paul... Now, you remember that the Lord had said of Paul, he is my chosen instrument. He's going to be one who takes my name to Gentiles and to kings and to the children of Israel. And Paul is all in. He's about doing what the Lord has called him to do. So what's the context? Look at verses 21 and 22, please. Paul's plan was to visit believers in Macedonia and Achaia and then go to Jerusalem and then on from there to Rome. But verse 23, there arose no small disturbance concerning the way. Kind of funny way to talk, isn't it? Uh, you do a search in, your, uh, in the book of Acts and you find Luke, when he wants to say there was a big problem, says there's no small problem. And that's what he does here and we're going to get to it in just a few verses in another way. What was this no little disturbance? Well, it says that it had to do with uh, the people of the way. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Apparently, way was code language for Christians. 
there's a problem with Christians. There are people in Ephesus that don't like what Christians are doing. That's the no small disturbance. And uh, how come? Well, at the macro level, we live in a fallen world, don't we? Dogs eat cats. Uh, people uh, have flat tires, you name it. Uh, it's just part of the curse of sin. But the fact of the matter is, Satan is out to destroy the kingdom of God. And he wants to uh, damn your soul in hell, if he can do it. And uh, that's to say that there's not one square inch of planet Earth, there's not one place of life that is immune from this spiritual conflict. And, and so think about it. In what ways do you see spiritual conflict in the world around you? Can you think of any? Where do you find people directly or indirectly opposing the things of God? And once you're aware of that reality, what do you do with it? Well, let me say, if you become aware, there's one thing you can do, you can pray. Lord, would you please frustrate the forces of evil in our world? So keep yourselves from idols. That's the context. Now, what's the example? Verses 24 and following. There was a man named Demetrius. He has something to do with this disturbance. And uh, what we're told is that he made uh, silver shrines. He was an idol maker. And um, now Luke's phrase again. And it brought him and other workers no little business. Big business. If you'd been an idol maker back then, you would have been walking in deep clover. Uh, it was a good time to be working in shrines in Ephesus. Uh, Demetrius, when I read about him and think about him, he kind of makes me uh, imagine what it would be like to be a union boss. I've never been a union boss. I did belong to a union, but I've never been a boss. Um, what's he do? He gathers his workmen, and he's going to alert them to a problem. And so look at verse 25. He says, uh, uh, my fellow workers, brotherhood, uh, you who are part of the brotherhood, um, we make our wealth from making shrines. That's how we do it. And one possible translation is, it's a really easy living. Well, there's this guy named Paul who has persuaded people far and near that gods, made, that gods made with hands are not really gods. And because of him, we are in danger. He says that Artemis, can you imagine? He says that Artemis is not worthy of our devotion and worship. And then he unpacks some very tight logic. Please follow it. It's there in verse 27. Because of Paul, our idol-making trade may come into disrepute. That is to say, shown to be worthless, discredited. And furthermore, the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And to top it all off, the great goddess Artemis may be deposed from her 
magnificence, and the bottom line inference is this. No more No more money. And verses 28 and 29, the people hear this. They are enraged. And they cry out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the whole city is filled with confusion. And they rush into the theater and they drag with them a couple of Paul's friends. I mean, I'd say, wouldn't you say? Demetrius seems to be a pretty effective motivator. Well, these people are hopping mad. And we might just pause here and ask the question, generally speaking, what makes people angry? You thought about that? What makes you angry? Don't you get angry when you have a sense that your rights are being somehow violated? That's the way it is with me. The tradesmen aren't angry because they've come to realize that idolatry is sin. They're upset because there's a threat to their bottom line. And you're a follower of Jesus, right? So what is, what's your reaction to idolatry? To what extent are you bothered by that? in other people or in yourself. Well, we've looked at the context. We've looked at this example. Now what we want to do is be reminded, keep yourselves from idols and go on and look at the danger. Now, just uh, a little bit of context, different kind of context. Uh, we're told that when Paul was at Ephesus, there were probably 250,000 people in the city. And back in those days, uh, cities, uh, large cities typically had theaters or arenas. And um, so this one would seat about 20,000 people built into uh, the side of a mountain, all stone seats, beautiful view down to the harbor and down one of the main streets. So now what's the danger here? Well, Paul wants to go into the theater. He realizes that people are agitated, distressed with his behavior, and he says, let me go. And his friends, disciples and Asiarchs, they won't let him. How come? The Bible doesn't say how come, but I don't think it's too hard to read between the lines. I think it's because they, his friends, presume there's danger. People are really mad. If Paul goes and speaks to them, and they may make the connection. This is the religious big mouth who's trying to ruin our business. I mean, if you were Paul and were in this setting, what would your emotions be doing as you anticipated going into the theater to talk to them? Perhaps 20,000 people, maybe upwards of 20,000 really mad, hopping mad, hopping mad like yellow jacket mad. Well, I hope you get some feel for what the emotion of the moment might have been like. So what about idolatry? Um, it usurps 
the authority of God. When you give yourself to idols, whatever your idol happens to be, whether it's Artemis or your new car or your bank account or your commitment to keep yourself safe all the time or, 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 you know, the list goes on. What are some of your idols? When you give yourself to an idol, you are taking honor that belongs to God and you are dishonoring him by giving your time, tension, emotion to something else that's of lesser consequence. It's insubordination, isn't it? Yeah, there is physical danger, I think, for Paul as he anticipates going into the arena, into the theater. But listen to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. This you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who, has, who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Yeah, physical danger among angry idolaters is one thing, but an idolater is in danger of eternal spiritual judgment. Let's imagine for the sake of the discussion that Paul had gone into the arena. There he is in the theater, he's right down there in the stage in the front where everybody can see him and hear him easily. And he says something like this. Whoops. You know I made a bad mistake. I am so sorry. I, it's come to my attention that I've made a negative, I've had a negative impact on your year-to-date sales. Give me a guesstimate of how much you've lost and I'll do some fundraising around Ephesus and we'll make it up to you. Or might he have said something like this? You know, I never intended to affect your bottom line, but I know that I have misspoken and now it's come to my attention. I'm a Jew from Tarsus. I didn't grow up in Ephesus. I don't understand your customs and your culture and your worldview. Everybody ought to be free to worship whatever God or God he wants to do. I don't know what I was thinking. And I take all, I take all back the ideas that God's made with hands aren't God. I'm taking it back. From now on, when I'm in Ephesus, I'm going to do what the Ephesians do. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Here's my guess. If Paul had talked to that angry crowd, he wouldn't have said any, either of those things. Why? Because he knew there was something more important. I think he would have gone on with some kind of sermonette like what he gave at the Areopagus. Remember what he said? This is, uh, this is from Acts chapter 17. The God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Idol worshipers, 
repent of your idolatry. I think that Paul would have seized the moment to advance the glory of God among the Ephesians. Which raises a question. Since our hearts are idol factories, what are you doing about the idols in your heart? And the idols all around you. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. There is some responsibility placed on followers of Jesus living in the middle of an idol-infested world. Well, we've looked at the context. We've looked at an example of idolatry. We've touched on the danger. And God's word to you is, keep yourself from idols. But the Lord isn't finished yet. In these verses, he shows us his patience and his kindness for the sake of believers in this town of Ephesus and beyond. So look with me now at verses 32 and following. Things seemingly go from bad to worse. Verse 32. Most of them, these people in the theater, most of them didn't know why they had come together. And so Alexander, a Jew, he's put forward and he stands up, he holds up his hands, he says, here, let me speak. And they shout him down for two hours. Imagine that. Then verse 35. Enter the town clerk. What's he do? Calms the crowd, supports their idolatry. See it there? Uh, he reminds them that these people of the way are really uh, law-abiding people. He encourages Demetrius to use the courts if he wants to press his charge. And then he warns them against being disruptive, down in verses 40 and 41. Sends them home. They do leave. And the Lord is unspeakably kind. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 20. When the uproar quieted down, Paul gathered and encouraged the disciples. Then he moved on from there to care for other believers. Have we seen anything like this before in the book of Acts? I know we're, we're ch challenging your memory a little bit. Does this ring any bell? How about chapter 18 with Gallio? Remember? Out of the blue, a spokesperson for Christians stands up and Paul doesn't have to say a word. In this case, Paul doesn't have to say a word because the town clerk speaks on his behalf and on Christians' behalf. He says they haven't done anything bad. Come on, go back home and mind your own business. The Lord amazingly protects the church, so that she can continue her ministry. So what we've looked at is the context, an example, the danger, and God's kindness. Where does Luke point us with all of this? He's not just recording history. He's casting a vision for the future. Isn't he pointing us straight to Jesus? Isn't that the first stop on the way to his vision? Look at how Jesus dealt with idolatry. Satan comes to him and he says, you know, 
Just look at all the kingdoms of the world. You bow down and worship me, they're all yours. And what does Jesus do in resisting? He says, get behind me, Satan, be gone. Worship and serve the Lord God only. Jesus personally resists idolatry. And then there's Peter. And he wants to keep Jesus from going to the cross. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so now Jesus rebukes a follower of his, not Satan, but a follower of his for pursuing idolatry. And how about one other example? Remember when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and asks what he has to do to be perfect? And Jesus says to him, here's what you do. Go sell what you possess and give it to the poor and come follow me. And we read these sad words that I think are un uncover idolatry. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus says, give them away and follow me. He says, can't do it. They're too important to me. Jesus challenges a rich young man to give all-out devotion to following Christ. Now, what would it look like if every follower of Jesus would walk in his steps when it comes to the problem of idolatry? Wouldn't you, first of all, want to do a little introspection and identify dangers in your own idol factory? And um, wouldn't you want to repent of the idols that the Lord shows you? And wouldn't you want to pray against idolatry? And wouldn't you want to rebuke Satan when he comes to threaten you and to urge you to be an idol worshiper? And then from the positive side, if you're going to follow Jesus in his footsteps as he deals with idolatry, wouldn't you also take positive steps to live for the singular glory of God? Wouldn't you kind of say, you know, I want to press all of my thoughts and feelings and behaviors through a grid, and I want to see what comes out the other side, and to what extent, when I press those through the glory of God, do they even get through? And wouldn't you want to, if you're really following Jesus, wouldn't you really want to actively encourage other people to do the same? I mean, idolatry wasn't just an ancient problem for Israel and the Perizzites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Girgashites. It wasn't just for them. It's a current problem here in Berks County, 2023. And so the Lord tells us, do not be idolaters. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 7. Flee idolatry. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. The works of the flesh are evident. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. And we want to say to ourselves loudly and clearly, we cannot successfully handle the temptation of idolatry and our own strength. You can't do it. If you think you can, you're smoking the wrong stuff. You can't do it. Neither does the Lord give us commands that we can somehow obey out of our own resources. Rather, he promises, my grace is sufficient for you. Strength is made perfect in weakness. All that Jesus requires, he provides. That's what the gospel is. All he requires is what he provides. The Christian life is not pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Jeff works at a uh, Jeff works as a corporate trainer at Schreiber Foods in Green Bay. And um, shortly after graduating from college, he wondered, "How can I best serve the Lord?" And as he rose through the corporate ladder, that was his continuing quest. How do I best serve the Lord? And so he gave himself to what he describes down, I'm quoting him, as pushing the edges of God's kingdom even, even further. He wanted to see the kingdom of God advance, and so he wanted to give himself to death. But how do you do that as a corporate trainer in a company that really has mostly cheese that it sells. How do you do that? Well, early 2000, he started a little 501c3 corporation called Mission Guides. Then he went to people at Schreiber, told them what he was doing, uh, asked them if he could have a Bible study at the office, and they said yes. And then he started recruiting other people, and uh, so over the last 20 years, he's had company support, and over the last 20 years, he's taken teams from Green Bay to places like Trinidad, Guyana, Sri Lanka, Burma, and then other places in the U.S. Uh, and you might think about him this way. You know, uh, one of the terms that comes up when you read Paul's life is that he was a tent maker. And the idea is that he made tents so he had to have money so he could do his ministry. Well, that's what Jeff has done. Jeff's a corporate trainer at Schreiber. That's his tent-making work, so he does what he really wants to do, and that is push the edges of the kingdom of God out farther and farther so that the glory of God is on display and uh, idolatry shrinks in the process. Well, the question then is, how might you better follow in Christ's footsteps. How's the Lord nudging you right now as you think about the priorities in your life? His word to you this morning is, keep yourself from idols. Lord, thank you for your work in our hearts by your spirit. We pray that you would bless your word and make us a blessing. May your kingdom come your will be done. May the work of Satan in this world be defeated at every point. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing one more song. It's numbered 115. If you'd want to turn to it in a songbook.